Okay, we're rolling now. Here we are. December the 7th, uh, 2014. Uh, lecture discussion number 180 on the book of Romans. And before we begin again, the usual re-beginning that occurs each week here at beautiful downtown Cliffside, I need to interject uh, for the a public service, I guess you would call it, for the sake of our vast worldwide internet audience. And I recognize that vast may be a teeny bit of an exaggeration, but... Uh, but vast in my defense is a relative term. What I think is vast might not be the typical definition. Anyway, I've accumulated, as I was saying in the pregame here, that I've got a bevy of very good questions from all over the world, and I mean all over the world. It's a remarkable thing. I can't even begin to explain how remarkable it is. And they've been piling up at an alarming rate. And usually, as you know, I, I do my best to include as many of them as possible, especially those that are directly applicable. I enjoy reading them. I like getting uh, getting them from you folks out there. But um, as you know, due to the recent added burden of my late mother's estate, I haven't been keeping up. And you've let me know that I'm ignoring you. I'm not really ignoring you. I'm just overwhelmed. But, however, Lori and I are now 99.642% complete. And so we're very excited about that. i got a couple of pieces of tram, a little bit of caulking. Uh, Lorenzo, one of the flying Lorenzos putting down the hardwood floor, did not hold tightly to the uh, five-pound hardwood floor hammer, and he let it go between his legs through the dining room plate glass window. So i got to fix that window. Uh, pull all that trim system, sash system out and put a new piece of glass in there. So that's all really all I got left to do. All that remains after that is to see how much money uh, we're going to lose. <laughs> that's not really a joke. Maybe you remember my best-selling book, right? Uh, how to Make $100 in a Lifetime in Real Estate. I got to issue a revised edition, I think, uh, which is How to Make $25 in Real Estate. In any event, I hope to begin rebegin processing all of your questions that have been sent in and inserting them in as much as possible after January until I've got them all resolved. So uh, thanks for sending them in, and thank you for your patience, you folks out there. I, I plan on doing it. I have not been hiding from you. Also, the phone. A lot of people have tried to call me, but our phone, the church phone, has a 60-cycle hum issue. The line has, uh, needs to be repaired. It's 60 hertz interference. It's annoying. I can't hear anybody very much uh, or on it, so sometimes uh, we don't even notice that it is ringing until uh, the, uh, the uh, answering system grabs it. So uh, we'll begin to put a little more time into the office, I hope. Okay. Before we now re-begin the re-beginning, I came across this. I have something that... I brought you today, and quite frankly, it's a very, very sad thing, and it, it's right in this, it's something that really, really bothers me, has my entire church career. It's very sad, and I thought it was worthwhile to attend to it because of the response it's getting, uh, the typical responses from the monistic, atheistic community, the evolutionists, for example. Sometime back, the big E from Sacramento, most of you know him, has sent me this doctrinally astute, um, I was going to put it on the board, I might still, but let me make a make room for it. But he sent me this doctrinally, doctrinally astute observation. And I've been waiting for the right time 
uh, to bring it to you, uh, just as a note, the Big E is 82 years old. And this is what he sent me. Good health is merely the slowest possible rate at which one can die. And I wish to emphasize the wisdom that's within that quote. Let me repeat it. Good health is merely the slowest possible rate at which one can die. Primarily, what I want to emphasize is the inevitability of death. Hebrews 9.47, as you know, it's a very important verse. As it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment. So there are these two things that are now uh, absolutely certain. Death, not taxes, but death and judgment are tied together. They are promises, if you will. They are certain. And death has a proportional aspect, a time element. That's what I mean by that. Death has a time to it. Judgment does too. But death is uh, a time process. And for some, the time of their life is uh, short. And for others, the time is short. Your life is short. So is mine. That fits into my motto, as you know, my real estate motto. It has to get worse before it gets worse. Your life is short, and for other people, it's also short. It's just short. All of it is short. Time is a relative term to us, but it is not, by the way, to God. We'll get to that in a second. What we, we're the little frail clay pots, right? The little frail vessels that are easily cracked. What we focus on, though, is how short is our short. My short is longer than your short. That's what we do. Uh, And all I can say to you, again, is that it's going to be short, and that's obvious. I didn't think that for the longest time, and now I know how short it is. It's astonishing. And Lori and I were talking about it a little bit earlier today, and she said, you know, the person that, because um, we all have photographs now, and, and Bookface has this throwback Saturday or whatever. Is that right? I don't know what it is. But anyway, everybody puts pictures of themselves when they were young. And so we look at them and realize, wow, I don't remember me. I really have very few memories of me uh, when I was a child. There's no pictures of me athletically in my 20s, late teens and early 20s. I can hardly remember that person. And I really don't want to go back and be him because he was an idiot. And I'd like to stay away from idiots if I can. There's nothing I can do about it. But it just the recognition of how fast my life has gone by is stunning to me now that I'm finally pushing 62. Uh, uh, and it takes some time to recognize how fast I, your short or our short is. But as you know all too well, great amounts of energy is devoted to squeezing out every possible second of our lives and very profitable industry. The death-defeating business is a profitable business. It's not really death-defeating, death is it? It is just simply, as uh, the Big E's quote, it is just simply death-delaying business. But it is a... Uh, booming enterprise. And that's the truth of the Big E statement. That we may with great effort and expense impact the rate. That's all we can do. 
if we can do that. Ever so slightly in all likelihood. And that's perhaps, it's not a certainty. But God has made our physical death a fact. It is a certainty. Again, that's generally the case. It's a generalization. I know there are exceptions. Elijah and Enoch and rapture, I've got all that. But appointed it is for all men to die and then the judgment. So, and after this, the judgment. So keep that in mind. Next time some traveling brother love salvation show comes barreling through town, uh, promising you that they can affect the rate of your death. They cannot affect the inescapable facet of death. Fact of death. And they know it. But they, they get you to believe they can affect the rate. Which now leads us to the resurrection, doesn't it? Note that Jesus Christ makes it clear that he alone can resurrect to eternity. Notice how I said that. He will resurrect to life, and he's God, and, that, and life to him has a definition. Life to us and life to him should be the same. We should have the same definition as he does, but we don't. We think our life is our is real life. It's not. We don't have life. We have a slow death process. So we cling to our slow death process. He understands being God, being the creator of life, he has the correct definition. So we have to define life as he defines life, and that means we have to define resurrection as he defines resurrection. His resurrection, he eliminates the time component. You see, resurrection is also inevitable. He says so. Everyone will be resurrected. There's resurrection to life as he defines it, and then there's resurrection to death, the second death as he defines it, Revelation 20.14. And he, as I said, he promises that he is the one who resurrects and he will resurrect. It is a promise from God. Now, having said all of that to set this up, because I'm getting to my little story here. There are those who will blow into town and they will promote themselves as having the power to resurrect the dead. You've probably all seen them. Most of you, if you haven't, I recommend that you go. I absolutely recommend. I get invited every time when they come to town. Most of the time they ask me to sing in the choir. I tell them they will never hear anyone sing quite like me. I'm amazing. They misinterpret that, of course. <laughs> Everyone who comes to your, your little show will remember my singing. It is so impressive. And they misinterpret that as well. But they come, and I think you should go. I think it's important that you go. And they come with their signs and their, and their stuff. And they say they have the power to resurrect the dead. But they do not possess that power. So that brands them immediately as someone who is lying as much as they can lie. And there's many reasons that they are not and will never be given the authority over death. Many reasons. I don't have time today. I've done it in the past. Maybe next week. I got it on my list to keep going this direction a little bit. I just wanted to establish it today. However, Having said that, let me, for the sake of the argument, concede the possibility. Let me say there is a possibility 
that there exists someone who can, for a sum of money, defeat death. By the way, they never resurrect for free. That's your first clue. They always take an offering. There's always a price involved. Now, I'm conceding that there's a possibility that such a person has this capability. And obviously, if she, he or she did have the capability, they would also only be affecting what? The rate of death still. Because if they resurrected you and left you in your current state, which is this environment, what happens to you? You continue. You're still in the death process. You still have the mortogenic factor. Eliminating the time component of death can only be accomplished by the creator of time. That is how it works. He is the only one that can remove the time component. Creation of time requires that, that the creator of time have characteristics that are both eternity or eternal and infinity. Only God has those. So anybody who does not have the characteristics of infinity and eternity has no possibility that he can resurrect anybody. So what can he do? Do not be impressed by those who claim to sell the affecting of the time of death. Not the instant of death, but the time component of death. Okay? Having said all that, now here's the sad story that I brought in today. And I can only read a part of it because it's pretty long, and I'll do my best to accurately portray it in my summarizing of it. Hamilton family left corpse upstairs for six months expecting resurrection. How many of you read this? It's very sad. Peter Wald's family truly believed he would rise from the dead. They believed it because they had prayed for it every single day while his corpse lay rotting for six months in an upstairs bedroom of their Hamilton home. When neighbors asked about her husband, curious about the 52-year-old man's seeming disappearance, Kayleen Wald would tell them he was in God's hands now. On Monday, Kayleen, 50, pleaded guilty to failing to notify police or the coroner that her husband had died due to sickness that was not being treated by a doctor. It's the first known case of its kind involving the belief of resurrection in Canada. Kayleen had no intent, no ill intent, all agreed. An assistant crown attorney, Janet Bowie, put it, I'm sorry, as assistant crown attorney Janet Bowie put it, the devout Christian woman's faith had tainted and warped her better judgment. We were trusting God, we thought, Kayleen said. Okay, Lord, you know better. She told the, the uh, newspaper after court Monday with lawyer Peter Bushi by her side. Sorry if I have the name wrong. Peter Wald died probably around March 20th, according to the agreed statement of facts read out in court Monday. He suffered from diabetes and his left foot had become infected. But he refused to go to the hospital and believed God would cure him. He went into a coma, she says, and days later she noticed his stomach bloating and signs of rigor mortis on his forehead. She then left him, his body covered with two blankets, his head in a 
It's some kind of wrap in the bed and padlocked the bedroom door. Kayleen sealed in the door and the vents with duct tape to protect her family from the smell of the cadaver. And then for six months, life went on, and they prayed for their dead husband and father in the bed upstairs as they awaited his resurrection. It was, uh, the dates here, September doesn't matter, but it was when the body was finally discovered. Six months later, the sheriff had arrived to evict the family from the St. Matthews Avenue near Barton Street East and Wentworth Street North House because they had defaulted on the mortgage. Expecting the eviction, the family packed the dead man's belongings and had his shoes and clothes and bags and ready to go. That's how strong our faith was, Kayleen said. But when she unlocked the bedroom door, his body had attracted Rodents was so decomposed it was impossible to identify him. His feet were sticking out from under the blankets with gauze still wrapped around the infected left foot. The sheriff said, okay, that's enough. Close the door, Wald remembers. Police and a coroner were called, but because of the mummified state of his body, toxicity tests could not be conducted, and the cause of death was not confirmed, though it is likely due to the infected foot becoming pervasive. The Children's Aid Society was called in, too, but they found no reasons for the well-being of the couple's children, and the case was closed. People living in the home, Kayleen, five of her six children, ages 11 to 22, and seven other adult friends were interviewed by police. Each provided a consistent account of the death of Peter and their religious belief that he would be resurrected. In court Monday, the Crown acknowledged that they had gone to trial. Uh, had they gone to trial, the chance that a conviction would be slim. There was no criminal intent. As Wald said af- afterwards, she wasn't even aware there was a law against doing what she did. It is an extremely sad case. She truly believed her husband was going to be resurrected from the dead even after six months, said Assistant Crown Attorney Janet Bowie. Bowie said she researched the law extensively and could not find another case like this. Kayleen said this, that she still strongly believes in resurrection and says there has been many, have been many, documented cases of resurrection around the world. Her faith was not shaken by the legal consequences. Okay? This is a sad thing for quite a few reasons. Peter Wald, clearly a devout man, allows infection to ravage his body unabated, which ultimately results in his death. As a devout man, his reasoning was that God would heal him of his infection. I'm going to ask you, why did he think that? His wife allowed his dead body to decompose for six months. Her reasoning was that God was going to resurrect her husband. I'll ask you again, why did she think that? And what is her definition of resurrection? 
I need to state that both Peter Wald and Kaling Wald were absolutely correct. And that may get me a whole bunch of letters on the internet. So let me explain what I mean. God will heal Peter Wald. And he will resurrect Peter. In fact, he's going to do both of those simultaneously and instantly. That's true. It is the great promise of Scripture. It is why we believe what we believe. But as is obviously the case, Peter and Kaling have no control over when God will do so. Timing, time, all of time does not belong to us. It belongs to God. And once again, and I've seen this many, many times, a deeply religious family with strong beliefs, lives of obedience, wonderful, kind, good, devout people, living lives that, that God will, will say, well done. They did not understand the basic principles of the Bible. It is appointed for men to die, Hebrews 9.27. If that's all you get from me today on today's lecture... That's so valuable to you, I can't even begin to tell you. It is appointed for men to die. After this, the judgment. That is truth. Absolute truth. But the real question is, is why? Why is this the truth? Why do all of us die? What are the purposes of physical death? What made Peter Wald think that he would evade it? That he would have a get-out-of-death-free card? He would elude it. Let me ask another question. What is good health? Can you you see that good health is uh, also a relative term, a relative assessment? Does anyone on this earth really have good health? Raise your hand if you have good health. Please do not raise your hand. You do not have good health. I do not have good health. There is no one here, no one Well, I can't say that, but there's certainly no one here today, no one living today that has good health. You make the case for Adam, Eve. No created being since Adam and Eve has had good health. All we have is the time process of death. So I say no, there is no one with good health. What we call good health is just the slowest rate in which we are dying, to repeat that. The slowest rate at which we are decaying. That's our definition of good health. What is God's good health definition? He has a much higher definition for good health. How would he define it? Start thinking about what he considers good, good health. Is it not the case that if God heals you, truly heals you, then you would be no longer subject to decay, would you? If you are healed, then you are not decaying anymore. By his definition of healing, you are no longer subject to death. All of the healing, what the world calls healing from the hospitals or the, like I said, the brother love traveling salvation show stuff. What the world calls healing is the delaying of the inevitable. It's important to know that, to know the distinctions, as as it is important to know why the entire environment that we're in is cursed. 
what the reasons are for our condition and the condition of the creation in which we are placed. You've got to know the reasons. And if you don't know why things are the way they are, then you fall into, uh, you fall victim to the, uh, the illusions of the con men. Now, let me reread that last sentence of hers, of Kayleen. Because I was hoping for Kayleen to go further than she had been. But this is what she said. She still believes strongly in resurrection. Is that good? That's fantastic. What resurrection is she believing in, though? And says there have been many documented cases of it around the world. Well, there's your clue. Bless her heart. Many documented cases of resurrections. Really? Documented by who? Let me ask you this. How many documented cases do you think of Peter Wald's condition, a decomposed, uh, rigor mortis, bloating corpse? This reminds me, by the way, when you read the responses from the atheistic community, the attacks on Kayleen, this sweet woman, I can tell you right now, is as sweet as she can be, as faithful as she can be. She just doesn't understand any of the questions that I have asked you today. She doesn't have the proper scriptural definitions. It reminds me of www.godhatesamputees.com. Is there any documented cases of somebody healing a body that has been dead for six months, resurrecting it? Healing and resurrected, by the way, are what? Ultimately the same thing, aren't they? So was uh, any of these documented cases, are they miracles or are they a fraud? It's really easy to tell. Are the resurrectors going to the morgues? No, they're not. They're not going to the morgues and emptying the morgues. And if listen, if I had the power, if God came to me and said, Steve, today, for the next 24 hours, you can resurrect from the dead. He has the ability to do that. If he wishes to do that, and if he anointed me with that power, would I go to the church services? No, I would not. Where would I go? I'd go to the graveyards. Absolutely, I would go. And what would those people that I resurrect look like? And I wouldn't be resurrecting them, would I? Don't mistake that. God's power, there's no possibility I could do it. I might be a vehicle that he uses to illustrate himself, but why would he do that? Why me? But the first thought would be to go to the morgues and the graveyards. And if I go and if those people are resurrected, what do they look like? How many of them come out looking like me? Well, I hope none for their sakes. Do the healers go to the hospitals? Ask Christopher and Lindsay and Charlotte and all the people here that work in the uh, in the. Medical profession. Ask them if there's any healers coming through healing people in the hospitals. There's people coming through the hospitals and they they got a good line, but nobody, it's not happening. So is this true resurrection or is it a simulation for the purposes of taking money? I think it's obvious. Consider what does a true resurrection require anyway? This is why uh, you have to listen to all my science stuff that you hate. Recombining the soul spirit with a fully restored body. What does that take on the molecular level? Who can do that? Who even knows where the soul is? You've got to find the soul, right? 
What's it made of? Where is it at? How do I get it? How do I transport it? How do I then deal with How do I reactivate a six-month-old dead cell structure that's decomposed and eaten by rodents and insects? How do I reactivate that? What's the molecular level res- restoration process? What am I? How much power? Who can do that? Who would even say they could do that? And who would they say it to? And a good friend at one time told me, he says, just how dumb an audience are you? He's talking to me. I realized, wow, I didn't really understand what he was trying to say to me. That's a long story and a different topic. But people that come in thinking they can fool you, that they can find the location of a soul, they can transport it, they can put it into what is a dead structure, reactivate that dead structure, structure, recombine them, bring it all back to life, and what age is it? Is it still 62? I don't think that's how God's going to do it. I think it's obvious. Many documented cases around the world. Whenever I see the word many, I always ask the same question. What question do I always ask? How many is many? Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. We'll get to that in a minute. That's how I transition. Try not to get ahead of the lecturer. You know, it's easy. I know, but that's exactly where we're headed. Now it's time... Uh, listen, I couldn't help myself with that. It just really makes me sad, almost makes me weep. I just read what Kaling says and, and what Peter must have said. What is this kid's doing? It, he goes up. All he needs to do is, is get a, a surgeon. They might have to amputate his foot. And they could delay his death process. What is he thinking? Why doesn't he know? What, what, did he, what has he done to his wife and his children? He's the spiritual head of household. The, those are sad, just really, really sad things. And then to read the, the hatred that is heaped on her from the people making comments. Um, so I couldn't help myself. I just wanted to say, Kayleen, you're right. God will resurrect you. He will resurrect your husband. He will resurrect everyone. It's what he does. Uh, you need to kind of figure out the time issue here. It's not if, it's when. Okay, time to start the lecture now. We left off last week still where we're at, Matthew 24, 45 through 25, 30. The evil slave who attacks and kills and tortures and beats his fellow slaves, the five uh, wicked or foolish bridesmaids, and the wicked slave who buried his one talent. And as often occurs, because I actually do try and cover these kinds of subjects rapidly, I really do go fast. I know you don't believe that. You think I'm really slow. Uh, but it's true. I'm going fast. And when you go fast, uh, you skip things, hoping people get it. And if you think I'm, I'm, I'm going fast, you should see slow. It's twice as painful as what you're going through. Anyway, by going at the high rate of speed that I do, relative term, people get lost. I know that's incomprehensible. How can this be, you say? But uh, lately I've gotten the same questions over and over again, repeated to me. And it's so funny, the people that were here last week saying, could you please go over this again? None of them are here. (laughs) But I'm doing it for them. Uh, 
But mostly the questions have to do with the trimming of the lamps, uh, whether or not it's silver or gold that is the talent. And just as an aside, really fast, the word talent, we've actually stolen it uh, from this particular parable. Because why? Why would we steal it? We say he has talent. He can play. America's got talent. Talent means a, it is a, um, it is a structure or, or, of gold or silver. There's gold talent or silver talent. That's ultimately my question. Which one's in the story here? But we stole the word talent because why? Does America have, does every, if I said, do you have talent? I mean, do you have a, a, a significant weight of gold or silver? But you don't think I mean that. Yeah, you, you think it's some kind of capability. It's not. We stole the word from this parable. And the people who stole it had no idea what the word really meant. How's that for consistent, huh? Remind you of the public school? Never mind. <laughs> I could say what I want about the public school system. I was in it, and I, I was essentially welcome back Cotter. No one knows who that is, do you? Okay. If you do, no, don't nod your head and say you know who that is. But that's who I, there was a write-up of me. I would like to look it up someday, see if I could find it. I was, as you know, voted most likely to die in prison by my high school class. That's only partly a joke. And then I came back to actually te- teach in that system. And they made a big deal out of it. Uh, well, not a big deal. It was in some little periodical that was um, in the Teachers Association. But uh, that's my claim to fame. <coughs> my point is, <coughs> excuse me, I get to make fun of them. So same question. So the trimming of the lamps, is it silver or is it gold talents? The, is it the rapture or the return? Uh, are the bridesmaids the Israel or the Gentiles? Uh, those questions come from the, uh, the parable of the ten virgins. And then there's confusion on the meaning of oil, and I erased it all. And, but the meaning of what is oil... Uh, what is ability? Who, who are the bankers? We covered the bankers last week. If you uh, missed that, I, I encourage you to. I'll do it again in a couple of weeks as well. And then interest. What is interest to God? When he says, you, you should have just given my money to the bankers and earned interest. God doesn't need money. Uh, so obviously, he's saying, you should have put my, my gold or my silver with someone and it would have done something. So what does he mean by that statement? It is clearly uh, a parable, and therefore it has a a symbolism uh, context to it. So let's see how many uh, of these I can uh, clear up. How many is many? One, yeah, thank you. So let's uh, reread the parable of the ten virgins. My pen fell out that marks Jeremiah 13. So that I can appear to go really fast when I'm doing things and impress you all with my... Now I can't even pick the pin up. I've dropped it twice. Oh, what is that sound? That is the rate of death occurring in me right there. You can... <clears throat> again, excuse me. Matthew 25. 1 through 13. This parable again. Let's go over it one more time. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. And that's the question. Is this the rapture or is this the return? Is this Christ returning to the Mount of Olives as king 
or is this the rapture of the church? People want to know that. We'll cover that today. Now, five of them were wise and five foolish. Those who, those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil. Now, let me put that back on the board. Took no oil. Bunch of questions as we've been discussing. Why would you take a lamp and no oil? What would you, what are you thinking? But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was, bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight, okay, here's a really great question. What time is midnight? That's important to know. What are the characteristics of midnight? What's the first characteristic that you would have of midnight if I asked you? What would you say? Dark. Good. That wasn't so hard, was it? Well, we'll get into why that's important here in a minute. You would think it's important. At midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. We had to deal with that. They all rose, and it was what? Dark, and so they went to trim their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us your oil. Our lamps are going out. But the wise answered saying, no. There should be, there, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterwards, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Bad news. When Christ says that, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Now, it's important to note that the, that the parable of these ten virgins here in Matthew, is, even though uh, Luke, well, I'll get to that in a second, it's only here in Matthew. It's the only place it is. That's important. Luke 13, 22 through 30, next week I'll get into Luke, contains it because the man who wanted to answer this question isn't here and I don't want to bog down without him just in case he shows up next week. Luke 13, 22, 30 contains some of the elements. It contains, I do not know you. It contains, Lord, Lord, open to us. And it contains the shut door. So even though this is only in Matthew, the, the, the virgins, the ten virgins, the lamps, the buy and sell, it's noteworthy. It's only in Matthew. And it stands alone in Matthew, and that's a, a key piece of information uh, that's very important because here it is set. These ten virgins are in between the two wicked slaves. Let me make that apparent. Okay? In verse 48, 2448, But if the evil servant says in his heart, My master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards, the master will come and cut him in two. I skipped a few pieces. And 26, But his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant. So, 
I have a, a wicked and lazy servant sandwich, if you will. In between these two wicked men, I have the ten virgins parable. What's the obvious question? Are the two wicked men the same wicked men or the same man? Do I have something about the wicked man and then I have ten virgin bridesmaids and then I have another thing, it's about the wicked man again. If the, you see, you have to consider if the two wicked slaves are the same guy. And I've always maintained took no oil meant something. Um, it's been my position as long as I remember teaching on this particular parable. Uh, I take the extreme position that took no oil means took no oil. Which I know sounds pretty obvious, but it isn't. Because there's another position. Anybody familiar with the other position? They disagree with me. I know. How can this be? I, I know that this comes out immediately. They insist that took no oil doesn't mean took no oil. What did they think it means? <laughs> I, I can't help but look at uh, Cindy gives me faces when she does her commentary in the back. It's very good. I, I've always wanted to film the audience. By the way, Supper Dave has a really interesting idea. That we're, and he, I know he's talked to Ben about it. I'm sure he has. If he hasn't, I know TJ has been trying to get us to do it for a long time. I have a big one of the biggest requests I get from the Internet folks. Hi, Internet folks is that uh, we put up some kind of system where they can see us. None of us want to be seen by them. So we have to put them in a place where we can see them, but they can't see us. So that's not that difficult to do. But they want to see us, and they want to interact. They want to yell at me, primarily, and shout questions out, which I think would be hilarious. And they also want to see who is doing what in here. You're all celebrities. You don't realize it. But I've made you famous. Well, infamous might be a better, better term. <laughs> but so there's a lot of interest in, in us doing that. We've been kicking it around. It's obviously a uh, for our little band of Indians. It's a big in, uh, endeavor. Okay, they don't think took no oil means took no oil. They think took no oil means didn't take extra oil. In other words, what's implied then? That's very important. They insist that took no oil means took no addition or extra oil. If their position is valid, it would mean that what? That all ten virgins then had operational lamps. And I say no. My view, my side says only five had lamps that had oil. Five took no oil which means that their lamps were disabled, and they're disabled purposely. I submit only one of these views is consistent with the parable. What One of those views is consistent with the end of the parable. What's the end of the parable? I do not know you. Only one of those views is consistent with that. Let's see which one that might be. Let's start by asking, when did the ten virgins go out to meet the Meet Jesus Christ, the bridegroom. What time did they leave? Hey, the bridegroom is coming, we think, pretty soon. Let's go out and meet him. Uh, when did they leave? What would you say? You know, we don't necessarily have a street system and lights and electrical distribution. So what time did they leave to go meet the bridegroom? 
How far did they go? Where did they go? Did they have the bridegroom coming here spot? Let's go to the bridegroom coming here spot. What time shall we leave? Well, let's leave at 10 o'clock at night in the dark. Take us a couple of hours. Is that what you think? No, that doesn't make sense, does it? So what time do you think they left? How are they dressed? What are they? They are in a wedding processional. What do they look like? Would you not agree that they would have left to meet the bridegroom during the daylight hours? And note that the text is specific. Let's look at it. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil, but the wise took oil in their vessels. The wise were expecting something. What were they expecting? That he was coming at midnight in the dark. And they would need lamps. The wicked, and notice I'm calling them wicked, not dumb, willfully evil. They took no oil. So they didn't have any idea when he was coming. Or they thought he was coming at a time he wasn't coming. One group knew when he was coming and was prepared. The other group deliberately were not prepared. They didn't take any oil. Why didn't they take oil? Who takes a lamp with no oil? Why didn't they take any oil? Come on, we've been doing this for three weeks now. They had none. They didn't know where to get it. They didn't have any oil. If I said to you, uh, show up here tomorrow and bring your car and, uh, and let's go to Seward, and I would go and fill my car up with gas and here you come and yours is being pulled by four other, five of you are pulling it into the parking lot. Uh, I would go, well, do you have any gasoline? No. Why not? I don't know where to get it. I don't know what it does. I don't know how it works. The wise were expecting a midnight arrival. The foolish were not. They took no oil. Were they expecting any arrival? That becomes the question. Did they even think it was true? If they didn't think it was true, why did they go? Those are important questions. And the foolish took no oil. And that is why the door is shut. And that is why Christ says to him, I do not know you. Let me ask you this. If you have the position that the, they had oil in their lamp, is it doctrinally possible to run out of oil? No, it's not. Good answer. If you can run out of oil and the door is shut and and Christ says to you, I do not know you, how do you reconcile that position with the doctrine of eternal security? I know that's a big leap. I hope people followed that. He says, Christ says, I have lost none. He loses none. Nobody runs out of oil and has the door shut in their face and he says, I don't know you. Nobody has that happen. 
They took no oil. It's foolish to take no oil. It's also evil to take no oil. But they trimmed their lamps when they heard the cry. And the extra oil people will say, see, that's proof that they had oil in their lamp. And it just ran out. Is your oil... Back that up. Are you going to run out? No. The oil doesn't run out. The, the word for trim, by the way, cosmio means to cut the wick. And this is a special kind of lamp. I wish I had one. I used to have uh, something that simulated, and I don't. I looked around. There's no way I could find it. You, those of us who are older, I have oil lamps, kerosene actually, in my house. Why do I have them? Because I expect something. I expect the power to go out. I lived through the earthquake. I know what can happen up here. So I've got kerosene systems. I've got generators. I am the most heavily armed pastor in the state. Okay, that's just how it is. I know that'll offend some of you folks out there, but trust me, you'll appreciate it if you lived in my neighborhood. Anyway, they had the they had wicks. They took wicks, but they took no oil. If those of us who know about wicks, if I took a wick out of the package, and I was going to have a replacement wick, and I took a match to that wick, if it had not been soaked in kerosene, what would happen to the wick? It would burn. How long would it burn? Not very long. It would smolder. It would burn very briefly without being soaked in kerosene. In this case, wicks will burn very briefly without oil. Does it shed any light? The wicked, foolish virgins cut their wicks. Think about what they're doing. They're cutting their wicks. They know fully that their lamps are not going to light. Those wicks had never been soaked in any oil. They didn't have any oil. They didn't know where to get any oil. And they knew those wicks weren't going off. Could not light without oil. Why did they do that? Again, the question, who takes a lamp with no oil in it? And a wick. And why do you go through the process of trimming a wick and setting the wick on fire? What are they doing? I think I know what they're doing. The doing is evil. They are pretending to be able to do something that they cannot do. They cannot do this. Beware of people that are pretending that they have power to do something that they have not any power. They don't even know the definition of what they say they're doing. Those are evil people. And they're... They're being depicted by Christ as evil. It is an act of evil to trim your lamp when you know you don't have any oil. It is an act of evil to say to somebody that has oil, give me your oil. More again on next week. Now, really fast. Is a talent of silver, is it a talent of silver or a talent of gold? People ask me this every Sunday. Now for the last month. And I keep saying, well, you can figure that out. And obviously, I've come down mostly uh, on it being a talent of gold, because I have I see the deity symbolism in the context. As you know, the deity solution uh, to sin 
the, the deity or the solution to sin accusation of the wicked slave. The wicked slave says at the end of that, just like the end of this one is, I don't know you, the end of the, the next parable is, I knew you to be a terrible God. He says terrifying, horrible, evil, a killer. He says to God's face, he says to Christ's face, the wicked slave does, I knew you to be a killer, a pathological killer, essentially. And that's a deity accusation. It's a goodness versus evil accusation. And so I've gone saying that it, in this case it's a talent of gold. I do know, however, that it, uh, a talent is also very much silver. I can get a silver talent. I can get a gold talent. Silver is a symbol for what? Gold is a symbol of deity. That's what I've been focusing on. What's silver, silver a symbol of? You can't, you cannot, absolutely, you cannot take a census without the silver, without the atonement money. It's a symbol for blood atonement. The word for money in 2518, to skip over there for those of you who have been been here for a while, you know what I'm doing. In 2518 of Matthew, the word for, you could have taken my money, but he who had, I'm sorry, but he who had received one, one talent and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money, the word for money there has a silver reference to it. So some conclude that, sil, that they're all silver talents. I don't think you can do that because uh, gold talents are far more valuable than silver talents. And God knew what a talent meant. He's the one that defines it. He's the one that gives you the, all the meaning here. And he would know that uh, there are gold and silver talents. And this is, um, I think, thus I think it's wise to consider that the talent has a dualistic or a twofold characteristic. It isn't just gold and it isn't just silver. It is either or both. And now I'm going to say to you, is it ever either or is it always both? Both aspects are present with the symbol of the talent. I just focus on the deity aspect. Now, finally, ability. Everyone has asked me. We've talked about it. I want you to try to figure it out on your own. It's important to me that you be able to do that. How many of you have figured out what ability means? He gave each a talent according to his ability. One got five, one got one, one got two, what is ability? And I think the answer is in Jeremiah 13. Do you remember Jeremiah 13? Um, I got off track there for a second. Let me go back. How many of you solved ability? Never raise your hand here. How do I know what the answer is now? Because I can look at you. <laughs> I think the answer to the question uh, resides in Jeremiah 13. Remember, there I have the parable of the sash and the parable of the jars. And God is, is saying to Israel, I am going to stop you from doing something. And what was he going to stop? If I, no matter, I've got to I'm going to go ahead and let you go into this insanity and I'll dash you together like 
clay jars, but I'm going to stop you from something. What's he going to stop them from doing? He talks about it. He said, he's going to do to them like the sash. It will be, he's, he's almost, I don't want to anthropomorphize, but he has come to the end where he will tolerate this extraordinary pride that they have. What's the obvious question? I've asked it a couple of times. He's going to put an end to their pride. What are they proud of? To the point where God has to go, I get, I've got to stop this now. And I know that's an inside of time, human perspective. He's going to stop it. The pride has gotten so bad. What are they so proud of? There's your solution to ability. If you answer the question, what were they so proud of? What is Israel so proud of? If you answer that, you now will solve ability. What must the ability be? It has to be what? It's got to be different from pride. Whatever they're proud of, whatever Israel thinks, you get a clue because they say, we know that all the jars are full of wine. We got that. We got it. We already know that. And God's doing this. I gotta stop you from thinking like this. I gotta bust all the jars. I'm busting all the jars. You're not gonna think like this again. This is really evil. So ability has to be the opposite of what Israel was proud of. When you get that, well you don't have to come next week. Otherwise, you do. Okay, or you should. I don't know if you should or not. Musicians. So far I have one musician. I have a musician and maybe a quarter of a musician coming. 